Hey, BSN Denver listeners. We're really excited to tell you about some game-changing coffee. Strava Craft is the CBD-enriched coffee that has really changed lives. Their reviews are incredible. Make sure you check them out today. This CBD-infused coffee has taken away long-term migraines, back pain, arthritis, IBS, and has helped decrease anxiety. You name it. CBD is all natural. It's also not psychoactive, and the coffee is rich and tasty. We could not recommend it anymore to our listeners. Check it out for yourself today and receive 20% off when you use the promo code BSN2019 at checkout to get your StravaCraft coffee for 20% off and shipped straight to your door. Welcome in to the BSN Nuggets podcast. Joined by a special guest, Mason Plumwood. I thought he was going to knock that ref out in LA. <laughs> Coaches will get testy with officials, but to run out onto the court and yeah. cut him off, yeah. I've never seen that before. You should have taken a charge on him. That <laughs> a special guest, Darrell Arthur. When did you first realize Nicole Jokic was good? He was in Philadelphia for Jameer's kind of like team bonding thing, and I knew it right away that he was going to be good. He was making great passes and good reads and stuff like that, and I said, this kid's going to be and now, here's your host, Harrison Wind and Christian Clark. Welcome to the BSN Nuggets podcast. As always, we are presented by The Green Solution. You can visit any one of their 17 Colorado locations. You can also browse their entire inventory online at mygreensolution.com. You can reserve products online and pick up at your local TGS Express checkout where you'll be in and out in minutes. And if you use promo code BSN20, you can get 20% off your entire purchase. Monday edition of the program, Harris Wynn and Christian Clark here. Here's what we'll do on today's show. We'll break down game seven, give you our thoughts on the Nuggets 196 loss to Portland. That, of course, ended Denver's season on Sunday. And then I think we'll probably get into some High-level reflection on the season that was at hand. I was just down at Nuggets Exit Interviews Monday morning where pretty much everybody on the team kind of spoke to the season, spoke to what they have planned for the summer and reflected on the last six or seven months. So we'll get into that and you know some takeaways from Monday's conversations probably later this week. A lot more to get to in terms of just the Nuggets offseason and where Denver goes from here, what to do with Paul Millsap. But you know we've got a lot of shows to fill over the next couple of weeks, so we'll get to everything in due time. But let's not gloss over Game 7 because there's definitely still a lot I want to get to. Sitting here around 24 hours from when Game 7 tipped off Sunday afternoon, what are you kind of still thinking about from that loss? It felt a lot like Game 7 of the San Antonio series to me. Um, Michael Mullen said that after the game. I tweeted that out during halftime. You know, the only difference was who came out on top. Uh, Denver Nuggets shot it terrible uh, against San Antonio. Like game 7, they are still able to grind out a win. It was a very similar performance uh, this time around. You know, the Nuggets not named Nikola Jokic went 0 for 13 from three, I believe. Jokic was the only player on, on on the entire team to make a three in this game. Nobody could just get anything to go down. Yeah, and we saw a similar theme, I think, in this game that we saw in a lot of Denver's playoff losses when the Nuggets have really struggled, and I mean really struggled to shoot the ball from three. They're going to have a hard 
time winning that game, and, and Denver goes 2-19 from deep. The only guys on the Nuggets to make a three in this game seven, well, the only guy on the Nuggets to make a three in this game seven, Nikola Jokic, who shot two of six from distance. Jamal Murray was 0-4. Torrey Craig and Paul Millsap each missed a pair of threes. Will Barton missed two threes off the bench. And so when you go two of 19 from three, you're probably not going to win any basketball game that you play in, but the fact that Portland went 426 from three, not much better, was a big reason why Denver found itself still in this game and, and really leading for most of this game until the fourth quarter. I agree. It did seem like the Spurs game seven. It seemed like a pretty typical game seven where there was some ugly basketball at times. Denver got out to a big 17-point first half lead. I don't know about you, but I always felt like Portland was going to make it close in the end. Lillard couldn't find his rhythm at all in the first half and really didn't have a good game. But did you feel like Portland was probably going to cut that gap eventually? Yeah, when Denver was only up nine at halftime, I figured it would be really close down the stretch. You know, if you had told me that the Trailblazers had won and and Damian Lillard was going to shoot three of 17 before the game, I would have had a hard time believing you. Mm -hmm. Um, So that was pretty incredible. I mean, that was... That was an all-time performance by C.J. McCollum, but yeah, I mean, when it was only when they're only up nine at halftime, I was like, man, this should be at least fifteen right now. Right, and you know, we saw Portland begin to cut into that margin in the third quarter, and then obviously take over in the fourth quarter. My feeling about how that second half went, the thing I think we'll remember from the third and fourth quarters is just Denver's lack of offensive execution. Really, after the first quarter, I did not feel like Denver really was itself played to its identity on the offensive end of the floor, and particularly the Nuggets starters, just I did not feel like generated good offense, and obviously it didn't lead to any made threes. It led to high percentage looks from around the rim, but Denver wasn't able to convert a lot of those. Nikola Jokic missed a bunch of easy ones in this game. A lot of plays that you can kind of look back at and say, man, if this goes one way, if the ball bounces this way as opposed to this way, Denver could have won this game. But sure enough, Denver obviously led for most of three quarters and was in this thing down to the last couple minutes. What do you think just was the difference down the stretch? Was it just Portland out executing the Nuggets? You know, honestly, I thought Denver got a little bit tired. Uh, I saw a couple guys appear to be running on fumes. Nicole Jokic was one of them. Jamal Murray looked like he was really laboring. And I do know we kind of do this thing whenever guys just miss shots and, and play poorly in the playoffs, we always blame it on fatigue. Mm-hmm. I guess that's like the Ryan Rosillo take. Uh, and we do do that to some degree, but they really did look tired to me. I mean, Nicole Jokic just did, didn't look like he had a whole lot left. My theory on why they look tired, and, and I agree, early in the third quarter, you could see guys with their hands on their knees, like literally two minutes into the third quarter. And I turned to a couple of people sitting next to me on Meteor Row, and it was like, uh-oh, they're already tired, and the third quarter just started. I don't think this bodes well for the second half and the fact that Denver already hasn't shot the ball well from three. Yeah, I mean, Denver was playing every other day for, what, a month and a half there? Right. A month or something like that? Right, and they didn't have more than one day off in between all these games against Portland until game seven when they had two days off. And in the first quarter, Denver came out and they looked unbelievable on the offensive end and also on the defensive end. It's funny. Denver went two of five from three in that first quarter and then went oh of 16 from three the rest of the way. But they held Portland to 17 points in that first quarter. 
Blazer shot 7-26 from the field, missed all of their nine three-point attempts. Some of those were wide open, but I really felt like Denver made it a point to contest those shots really well around the arc. I have a sneaking suspicion that how hard they played on the defensive end of the floor took a little bit of wind out of their sails throughout the rest of the game. Yeah, there, there weren't that many times, you know, especially in the playoffs, where they had the, these great defensive games that also shot the ball well. You, you have to feel like it has to be related a little bit too, right? I mean, if they're expending so much energy on defense, maybe that does take away from their shot-making ability. Uh, yeah, I do. I think we've seen that with this team before, and we've even seen guys say that. I think Michael Malone has even said that at times. And it's probably natural. When you're playing all out on the defensive end of the floor, you're not going to have as much steam on offense. We've seen Torrey Craig say that. I've He's said that on countless occasions, how hard he plays on defense, how he's got to track Damian Lillard and Russell Westbrook and all these top flight point guards in the West on a night-to-night basis. That impacts him on the other end of the floor. What did you think of the defense that Torrey Craig played on Damian Lillard in this game and how the Nuggets defended Lillard throughout the series? Because really, I felt like that was one of the big storylines. Yeah, absolutely. I thought Craig did a phenomenal job on Damian Lillard, and I thought Gary Harris did an excellent job too when when he was matched up there in, in spurts. You know, Denver really blitzed Damian Lillard. Um, I think they did a really effective job of that apart from game six and maybe some parts of game one, but... They really forced other guys to, to try and beat them. And, you know, Damian Lillard missed a lot of shots in this game, but I thought Denver played excellent defense on him. And, you know, we, we said this a couple times throughout the series, but Damian Lillard was not their best player in this series. I mean, it was by a comfortable margin, it was C.J. McCollum. So I thought Denver definitely did enough defending Damian Lillard to win this series. Just it was other things that beat them. Yeah, Lillard was not impressive in this series. And coming into this thing, I really expected him to roll, to be quite honest with how he made quick work of the Thunder, and the Thunder were one of the best defenses in the league this year. The Nuggets were good, but not at an Oklahoma City level. I kind of expected him to have his way with the Nuggets' defense, and you know his numbers across the series, not terribly impressive. In the second round against Denver, he averaged just 25 points, but only on 41% shooting from the field, shot at under 30% from three, turned the ball over three times per game. And in that game, seven, he goes three of 17, uh, two of nine from three, also had 10 rebounds and eight assists. So he contributed, but just never really had the impact that I thought he was going to. I thought he looked frustrated throughout the series, especially with the officiating, which I was a bit surprised that got to Lillard as much as it did. He looked frustrated with the pressure that Torrey Craig and Gary Harris applied to him throughout those seven games. So Denver did enough of a job on Lillard. They just weren't able to hold down the rest of the Portland. And I think blitzing Lillard in the playoffs, like that's the playbook on him until the trailblazers, you know, upgrade those forward spots or, you know, maybe start playing Rodney hood more minutes as they did throughout the series. They just don't have a lot of shooting on the wings. I mean, Amino and Harkless, Amino is kind of a mess shooter and Harkless is definitely a minus on that end. So they just don't have a lot of guys who can really make you pay when you do send double teams at Lillard. Right. And again, I think I said this on a show last week. I'm still not quite sure what Oklahoma City was doing in that first round with their defensive scheme and how they had such a great defense throughout the regular season. And they had played Portland four times 
like every Northwest Division team had, uh, but just seemed not to be ready at all for what they were going to throw at them in the playoffs. And last year we saw the Pelicans just snack on the Trailblazers by by trapping Dame all day. Right. That's that's a playbook on them. Yeah. So Denver was able to execute that really well. And I guess just getting into some more overall thoughts on this series, Game 7, C.J. McCollum, probably one of the best performances I've ever witnessed, just single game. And over the course of that series, he was, like you said, Portland's best player, probably the second best player in the series behind Nikola Jokic. And in that deciding game, 70 goes for 37 points, eight rebounds, or sorry, 37 points, nine rebounds, 17 of 29 from the field, only attempted three three pointers in this game, really did all of his work from the mid range, even prompting LeBron James to throw out a analytics are stupid tweet late in the fourth quarter when Lillard was just killing Denver with one mid-range jumper after another. He had one to seal it with under 30 seconds to go where he was kind of at the foul line and he had one of those Jordan push-offs. I thought that was very MJS, kind of a step back there, but Denver just couldn't stop him. I thought Gary Harris played great defense at times throughout this series, but it just wasn't enough. Yeah, McCollum was just freaking incredible in this game. Um, you know, anytime like the Nuggets, I thought had had the position on him defensively, he was able to like wriggle out of it and, and just hit one of those tough contested mid-range shots. I think he's one of my favorite guys to watch in the entire league. He has such a, a aesthetically pleasing game. He, it's beautiful to watch. Really, I mean, the guy is just so slippery. Like this is gonna sound weird, but it almost reminded me of like. CJ McCollum in this series reminded me of like David Blaine where you lock him up and like put him in a, in a tank underwater and he has like the key at the bottom of the tank and he's able to get out of it. CJ McCollum is able to like get out of any situation with, with his dribble and just the way he changes direction. He's so slippery. Yeah. And just his head fakes and like his, with his dribble, like you said, he's so good at splitting that double and just throwing the ball out a little ahead of himself and just going to catch it and just still being in that happy zone between the two trapping defenders and whoever's coming over from the weak side to help. So he got into the middle of Denver's defense way too much in Game 7. Yeah, and, you know, the play of the game, obviously, was the the pull-up McCollum hit to, to stretch Portland's lead to three with about 11 seconds left. Michael Owen said afterwards that he's going to be second-guessing him all summer if, if he should have sent an extra defender at McCollum. I think he had to do that one over again. Um, obviously, he would have sent the extra help, and... yeah. It's easy to say that in hindsight. It's it's a tough call, but that, I mean, yeah, sending the double was, was probably the right decision. Um, you know, if you play that out one out a hundred times or whatever, because he was just so hot. <laughs> and, and especially because by the time this series wrapped up, Portland was really only playing five guys. Like they were really only playing Lillard, McCollum, Canner played a lot in Game Seven, but. They also had heavy doses of Zach Collins, who probably would have played more than he did if he didn't have five fouls for most of the second half. By game seven, Mo Harkless and Aminu, those guys were pr- practically unplayable. And we saw Rodney Hood get a ton of minutes, Seth Curry get a ton of minutes, Evan Turner really hurt Denver in game seven. And so Portland just kind of you know, went with their guys that had hurt the Nuggets the most throughout the series and Collins and Rodney Hood and Curry at times and Curry didn't do anything in game seven, but Evan Turner came out of nowhere to give Portland good minutes. So yeah, tough way for Denver's season to end. And obviously a lot of thoughts on what's next 
for these guys in the off season and and we'll get to that but probably a few more things we should touch on from just this playoff run and whatnot let's hit a break real quick and we'll get into a few more things of that nature we'll be right back Green Mountain Dental Group is a family-owned business that has been a staple in Lakewood for over 40 years. Whether it's cosmetic, oral surgery, or preventative dentistry, at Green Mountain Dental Group you will find nothing but the best. We have chosen Green Mountain Dental and will continue to attend Green Mountain Dental because of the superior care that we receive from them. Their facility is amazing and above all, it's the personal touch that we receive from the people there, including Dr. Ben Jr. and Anne and Mary and Sherry and Marie. They've known me was my husband, my children, and now my grandchildren, and are just incredible with all of us. That was Annette. She's been a patient at Green Mountain Dental Group since 1976 and truly loves their service. Never did I think in 1976 how blessed we would be to recognize the people at Green Mountain Dental and are so thankful that they have been a part of our lives. For all new patients, Green Mountain Dental Group offers free teeth whitening trays when you schedule a cleaning x-ray and exam. Just mention BSN Denver. Welcome back to the BSN Nuggets podcast, as always, presented by The Green Solution. If you visit mygreensolution.com and use promo code BSN20, you can get 20% off your entire purchase. Monday edition of the show, Christian, did Nikola Jokic exceed or fulfill your expectations that you had of him? Well, I mean, I had really high expectations. You go back and listen to those shows right before the playoffs started. I said, Nicole Jokic is the number one guy I'm not worried about. I think his game is going to translate. He exceeded all my expectations. Mm -hmm. That was an all-time postseason debut from Nicole Jokic. I mean, just did it in every single category. He was efficient. I mean, he played a ton of minutes, finished right around 40 minutes per game, his second or third most out out of players who advanced to the second round. I mean, he was just sensational in every way. Brought it on both ends. And he did it from a leadership standpoint, too. And and we saw this again last night where Michael Mullen's telling us he's standing up in the locker room, taking the blame for the loss. He did have a tough fourth quarter, but come on. That that game, that loss wasn't on him. Um, you know, he needs some other guys around him to get going. But Nicole Jokic checked every single box I had in this postseason. Yeah, he missed that free throw late which is what a lot of people around the team were saying he was most just frustrated about. And apparently he was crying in the locker room after this one. But he goes for 29-13 in Game 7. Didn't have his best game of the playoffs by any means. Shot 11-26 from the field, 2-6 from 3. But he did more than enough, and he carried more than his weight in order for Denver to potentially win this Game 7. His averages for the playoffs in 14 games – 25 points on 51% shooting from the field, 39% shooting from three, 13 rebounds, eight and a half assists per game, a steal and a block. I agree this is going to go down as one of the all-time playoff debuts. And this, in my opinion, is going to be a playoff debut that we look back on in five or ten years and really gain an appreciation for it. Can't you imagine looking back on this thing in five years and being like, wait, Nicole Jokic at 24 years old went for 25, 13, and eight and a half in his first 14 playoff games, carrying a Nuggets team who at times didn't give him enough help. I feel like it's going to age really well. 
Yeah, and I always thought it was kind of silly that people were really questioning Jokic's game in the postseason. I mean, I, it's it's fair to question what he would look like against the Warriors or Rockets, just the teams that can really spread you out and the best of the best. But I was never worried about him against the San Antonios, the Portlands, the Oklahoma Cities, the, the Jazz, or anyone like that. Because Nicole Jokic, you take away one thing he tries to do, and he does the other thing. I mean, we saw the Spurs you know, send double and triple teams at him and he just made the right play every single time. And it basically came down to, Hey, can Denver shooters knock down open threes? They finally did that. They switched back to single coverage as the season went on and Jokic just freaking eight. He mm-hmm. had 43 points in the first closeout game of his career. That was, that was one of the best games I've ever seen Nicole Jokic play. It's the really best a shame. Game I've ever seen him play. Yeah. It was, it was a shame that that came in a loss, but man, there were, there were some incredible moments um, I actually I made the case in my my piece last night just on Jokic's postseason debut. I thought the most impressive thing he did was playing 65 minutes in that quadruple overtime game, and he made yeah. some mistakes late in that one. Understandably, he also missed a free throw late there that could have given Denver another last gasp effort. But I mean, Nikola Jokic playing 65 minutes? Are you kidding me? Right, right. That's crazy. Looking back on it now, and. He did not look as tired as some other guys did in that game, both on Denver and Portland's side. Defensively, that's where his biggest question mark was coming into the playoffs. I agree. I wasn't worried about it against the Spurs. I was a little worried about it against Portland with just how many pick and rolls they run and how much space he would have to cover. And he did a hell of a job uh, defending Portland's pick and rolls and bringing him up to level the ball and trapping lower. That definitely seems to be a winning formula for Denver on the defensive end of the floor. And sure, we haven't seen him against Houston and Golden State. And, you know, in fact, he could look terrible on the defensive end of the floor against Houston and Golden State. And I wouldn't be surprised if he was. Uh, But that will have to come later on. Maybe we'll see that next year. And now he's got a summer to maybe get better and get a little quicker with that potentially on the horizon. It's crazy hearing Jokic talk about himself as the leader of this team and, and saying the things that, you know, the franchise player typically says and, and contrasting that with just the comments Jokic made even two years ago. I mean, I remember right after the Nuggets signed Paul Millsap at, at Media Day, uh, Jokic was just like, oh, you know, I'm just here as a supporting cast member for Paul Millsap. I mean, this <laughs> is a four-time All-Star, He you was guys. probably so happy when they signed Paul Millsap so he <laughs> wouldn't have to be the quote-unquote leader. Yeah, I mean, I remember I wrote that piece in January, kind of, and the big the big picture picture question was, you know, can Nikola Jokic? We know he has the talent to to be a franchise player, but does he have, I guess, the emotional makeup, and and does he want to take that on the the burden of of being the guy night in and night out? And I think the answer to that question after this postseason is a, is a resounding yes. I think there have been a couple landmark moments in Nikola Jokic's ascension. Cut me off if I'm forgetting one or leaving one out that you think of. But the first one probably comes December 15th, right? When he becomes the Nuggets starting center and kind of history goes from there. Yeah, December 15th. Tim Connolly's back tattoo. Who can forget? (laughs) Right, right. Um, The next one might be when Paul Millsap pulls him aside and says, you're the leader of this team towards the end of last season, he just goes on that absolute tear to almost get Denver into the playoffs when, at the time, I called that the best basketball of his career. And obviously, that that has been uh, supplanted now by this playoff run, I think. But that's the next one that comes to mind. 
him taking responsibility for this loss in game seven might be what's next up in my opinion. Hmm. Yeah. I, I mean, those are all the, the broad points. I think, um, <laughs> I, I can't believe how far this guy has come since, since December 15th. It, it's amazing that he's developed, I think these leadership qualities so quickly, to be honest, um, yeah. you know, that, that piece I wrote in January, I kind of contrasted Dirk Nowitzki's career arc with Jokic and, it took Dirk a lot longer to be to accept that he was the guy in Dallas. Like it took him until, you know, 26, 27. Jokic is 24 right now and and I don't have any more questions. I'm I'm convinced he can be the best player on a championship team and like I feel 100% confident in him being, you know, the number one option here for the next decade. And the leadership thing is funny because I'm not sure I ever thought it was going to come to be quite honest. Like I remember talking with Richard Jefferson last year and Richard Jefferson was like, no, nah, Nicole Jokic is never going to be a leader. That's just it's not who he is. And I was like, oh, wow. You know, Richard Jefferson, he's been around the block. He's been on teams with great leaders like LeBron James. Like he's obviously a guy to know if a guy could ever become a leader or not. But you know, o- over the last year, Jokic has just made so many leaps in that area. And I think you can see him as a leader for this team going forward. Not just a lead-by-example guy, but he's even getting vocal in the locker room, on the court during games. You can see him just pointing out and directing traffic and getting on his guys in huddles like he hasn't in years past. So he can definitely be a leader in every way, shape, and form for this group. I saw so many give me the damn ball claps during the playoffs. Right. Like, Yoke just standing at the top of the key, like, all right, guys, give me the ball, and we're going to get a good shot. Jamal Murray had a great couple anecdotes today where he would just get with Jokic before a play or you know, coming out of a timeout or as they're walking the ball up the floor, and Jokic would say, all right, me and you, two-man game, let's go. Or, you know, just calling out another one of their sets that involved him or involved Murray, so... He's very confident in himself right now, and you get the feeling as games wore on this season and as the season wore on, particularly in the playoffs, I mean, this guy was pretty much just conducting traffic out there. Putting you on the spot, where will Jokic rank in SI's top 100 this summer? Tenth. Uh, oh, I'm going to say like sixth or seventh. Okay. I mean, my personal list, he would be definitely inside the top 10. I think he was like 11 or 12 in that list last year. Oh. I think he'll make another pretty nice jump. Doesn't SI think a little more favorably of him than like ESPN does in their top 100? Oh, yeah. They love Jokic. Yeah. It's Gulliver and uh, Rob Mahoney. They love Jokic. Yeah. So uh, I guess maybe a little inside the top 10. I mean, who is he not going to be in front of? He's not going to be in front of Giannis. He's not going to be in front of LeBron, Kawhi, Steph, Harden, Harden, Durant. That's six right there. So maybe seven is him or Embiid? Embiid. Yeah. So maybe seven or eight is the highest he could be. Yeah, that's possible. That's That's very possible. How do you think this playoff run from Jokic and this playoff run from the Nuggets is going to impact them next season? Like, do you think Denver's in for a regression? Do you think we should expect a regular season like we saw this season from Denver? I know we're getting 
really far ahead of ourselves. But do you think this playoff run will show itself during the regular season next year at all? Uh, I mean, I think you have to prepare yourself for the possibility that this team doesn't win 54 next year. I mean, I, I think they'll probably be in the 50s, but it's it, there's a possibility that it's it's not quite at 54. They got to figure out what they're going to do at small forward. Are they comfortable just running Will Barton back out there as a starting small forward? I mean, this his year kind of got screwed up due to that injury, and he closed not very well. They got to figure out the Paul Millsap thing, but there was, and I'll say this too. I mean, this was this was a dream season. I mean some incredible contributions up and down the roster. I think there was a little bit of luck too with, Oh sure. I mean the injuries, yeah, that was terrible luck, but I'm just saying like Denver's record in close games, you know, close games throughout sports. A lot of that is due to luck. And you can look at the NFL, like teams that did really well in one possession games don't tend to do as well the next year. So I think there maybe is some regression there, but I mean, I think for at least the next five years, this is a team that's going to be winning in the mid-50s. The thing I worry about with this playoff run is Denver got a taste of what it's like to be in the playoffs and just how hyper-focused and intense the environment is. I really do wonder if they go into the regular season just kind of bored and like, all right, we got to the playoffs. This regular season thing is pretty boring. Like, what are we even doing here? Like, can't we just turn it on when we get to the playoffs? Yeah, maybe. There's a, there's guys with something to prove next year, though. I mean, I think Old Barton definitely has something to prove next year. I think Gary Harris does prove that he can stay healthy. Um, so, you know, Jamal Murray proved that he can be that consistent star. So, uh, you know, yeah. Jokic... Jamal Murray wants to prove he can score 50 points every <laughs> night, though. Jokic might not have that much to prove, but I think there are a lot of other guys who do. I'm going to be interested to see what this playoff run kind of waterfalls into next year for these guys. Let's head on a couple other players and, and just speak about their playoff performances in general. Jamal Murray, I felt like, was outplaying Damian Lillard. For most of the series, obviously, Lillard had that huge game six, but for the most part, I felt like this was a big coming-of-age playoffs from Jamal Murray, and it ended on a sour note when he was just 4 of 18 from the field, 4 of 14 from two-point range, and did not have a great game. In Game 7, I just didn't really feel like he knew the types of shots he needed to be seeking out in you know those high-pressure moments late in uh, Sunday's loss. But when you look at his playoffs, I mean, it's got to be a, a positive sign moving forward, right? Oh, no question about it. I mean, it, it definitely convinced me more that he's going to turn into a star, which is, I think, where we've, we've kind of been at. Um, he was a lot more consistent during the playoffs than he was during the regular season. I think he, he upped his game. Certainly you, you just hate to see it end on, you know, what was it? A four of 18 shooting performance. Mm-hmm. Uh, he was three of 17 until he hit that, that mid range shot right at the end. So it was starting to look a little bit startsian. but Jamal, I mean, you need that tough shot maker, especially in the playoffs. I, I think his skill set does become more valuable in the playoffs. I think he made a lot of strides as a playmaker. Um, you know, I mean, the Jokic Murray two man game was just freaking humming by the end of the year. It was it was beautiful to watch. I mean, Jackie Mack just came in town and, and and did a write up on it. It was so impressive. So, I think Murray looked more like a complete offensive player. And the next step for him is obviously the consistency, but. He's got to be better on the defensive end because Denver 
tried to put him on Derek White the first three games against San Antonio. That went horribly, and from then on, they just hit him. And the playoffs went a lot better for Denver, but there's going to be a point you know, in the Nuggets in the postseason when Jamal Murray's going to have to guard a good lead ball handler or something like that. Yeah. I think you saw that with the Warriors a little where they kind of just needed Steph to guard his position at times, and there are certainly times when the Warriors hide Steph, but sometimes he's on those opposing point guards and does a pretty decent job. Murray's going to have to get there. And uh, we've talked about this all season uh, with Jamal Murray as the Nuggets swing player or most important swing player. But when he played really well, the Nuggets won in the playoffs. When he played poorly, Denver lost, just like it kind of bore out in the regular season. So no surprise there. But I think it was a, a very valuable playoff run for Murray. He averaged a little over 21 points, shot it okay from the field, 43%. 34% from three, 4.4 rebounds, 4.7 assists, only one and a half turnovers per game. I thought that was great from him, not turning the ball over a ton. In my opinion, game seven, it obviously hit all these guys hard. There was a lot of disappointment in that locker room after this game. I feel like it hit Jamal Murray the hardest, though. He was really uh, beat up after Sunday's loss emotionally, and then even at his exit interview Monday morning, you could tell the guy barely slept last night. So I feel like that loss definitely shook him up the most. Yeah, I, I just hope Jamal is going to learn some of the right lessons from this playoff run. Um, I mean, I think he understands that he needs to be more consistent as a scorer. I think he gets that. I, I just hope that he sees that he needs to improve on the defensive end. I mean, I, I hope that he understands that, hey, it, it's not going to work out long-term if we have to hide you all the time. It's not fun to work on defense and study film. It's a lot more fun to just shoot threes. But yeah, you hope that's a focus of his this coming summer. Who else stood out in these playoffs to you? Gary Harris certainly had his moments, as did Paul Millsap. The bench really struggled for most of these playoffs. What else are you going to remember? I'm going to definitely remember Gary Harris's defense. Um, you know, switching Gary Harris onto Derek White, as we just alluded to, completely changed the tone, the tenor of that San Antonio series. I'm, I'm more convinced than ever that, that Gary Harris is Denver's best perimeter defender. I, I think he is even a step above Torrey Craig. And look, I know Gary doesn't have, didn't have like the sexiest box scores during the playoffs or whatever, but I just think he's, he's such a valuable piece, which I guess we already knew coming in. Yeah, when he wants to be, I feel like he can be an all-NBA-level defender. And we saw it at times in that Portland series. He just didn't defend McCollum well enough when it really came down to it. I mean, some of those shots, you could drape one of, you know, some of the league's best defenders of all time from McCollum. He was still going to hit those and still going to get that separation. But felt for the most part, he was good. I almost feel like Gary could get to the rim every time if he really wanted to. And when he does get to that right hand and just powers his way to the rim, man, he's unstoppable. So, I mean, I would like to see him get all the way to the rim a little bit more. Yeah, it, it felt like he could have done a little bit more scoring-wise in that game. I mean, he, he finished 7 or 11 from the field. You know, he's got it going. Murray clearly didn't. Maybe that's a time where you want to see him pick a little more of the slack up. I agree for sure. I felt like Paul Millsap had a great start to the series, particularly against Portland, and then obviously faded late. It was 3 of 13 in Game seven wasn't great in game six either, and that was another reason why Denver's bench struggled. Like Denver's bench offense pretty much 
trickle down to the point of, all right, we're just going to let Paul Millsap go at Evan Turner or let Paul Millsap go at Harkless or Aminu, whoever Portland puts on him. If he can get a bucket, great. If he can't get a bucket, well, we're probably not scoring that trip. And Millsap missed more than he made in game six and seven, and that really contributed to uh, the struggles from Denver's bench, which just didn't have it all playoffs. Yeah, I mean, Denver's bench and and their struggles in the postseason, that was among the most surprising things I think I saw in the playoffs. And I don't know, maybe maybe I should have seen it coming. You know, Monte Morris, his first time in the playoffs, he was really the glue that held everything together for that, that bench unit. I think he made everybody look a little bit better. And he just got completely taken out. I mean, Monte was was almost a non-factor in the postseason. Even got benched in the second half of, what was it, game six? Mm-hmm. So, I think for the first time all year. Yeah. That, that was tough to see. Um, I mean, his three ball completely deserted him. I, I feel like that opened a lot of things up for him in the regular season. So. Oh, a 13 from three in the playoffs for Morris. Oof, man. Yeah. And, you know, that, that mid-range, that's his shot, wasn't as effective for him. So it was tough to see the bench struggle. Um, I mean, do you think they need to make, like, significant upgrades on the bench, or do you think it was just they had a bad couple of games? It's interesting because it's going to be a point we talk about a lot this summer. If you were to ask anybody that question throughout the regular season – the answer would probably be no, but after you look at what happened in the playoffs, the answer is probably yes, because the bench just didn't look up to par in the playoffs, and they really lacked a scoring punch, and yeah, maybe they would have had a scoring punch if Will Barton had been himself this year, and then again, that might have meant he was playing with the starters for most of that time, but the bench was one of the best second units in the league throughout the season, and in the playoffs... They looked like one of the worst. So now I think Denver probably goes into this summer looking to upgrade. What do you think? Yeah, I mean, I, I don't think they're doing anything at backup point guard. I know Monte really struggled, but they got to be content there. Mason, oh, yeah, you have Monte Morrison, you have Will Barton, so I, I don't think you would do anything there. And you have Nikola Jokic, who can yeah. run point with anybody. Yeah, and, and you know, Plumlee's got one more year under contract. You know, Run him back. I mean... It's pretty obvious, but I, I think the one thing that they need to to shore up is some wing depth. Like they need some, you know, six foot six, six foot seven, two hundred thirty pound dudes to to just throw at the elite wings. They just don't have any of those guys really, apart mm-hmm. from Tory Craig. And unfortunately, those guys are the toughest in the league to find. Once you hold on to them, you don't let them go. It's not like there are a million Robert Covingtons floating around out there. Who is the exact guy Denver needs to add to their rotation? By the way. Oh, he'd be perfect. Uh, what can we do about just making Gary Harris like four inches taller and 50 pounds heavier? <laughs> right. I'm sure the Nuggets have, have tried to find ways to do that somehow because if he was, he, he'd be perfect there. The thing about it is there just doesn't seem like to be a ton of really high impact moves out there. Yeah, you can find a bench guy. There's free agents out there, and we'll talk about this throughout the summer, but there's guys like Wes Matthews and Boyan Bogdanovich or yeah, Boyan Bogdanovich, and uh, almost got him confused with Herboria Bogey. And, and, and there's guys you can find who will play maybe 20 minutes for you off the bench, but then you're cutting out time for Malik Beasley. You're cutting out time for Monte Morris, guys who looked so great during the regular season. So that's tough. 
You like my Wes Matthews idea, huh? Yeah, I like Wes Matthews. I think he'd be good. Again, if you're bringing him off the bench, right, and you still have Will Barton here, you still have Gary Harrison, Jamal Murray, and Malik Beasley, and Monte Morris here, how much playing time are you really going to give him, though? And you have Torrey Craig, so. A lot that needs to be resolved this summer. Yeah, real quick, before we move on, though, Gotta tell you guys about a game-changing coffee. It's Strava Craft Coffee, of course. Strava Craft is the CBD-enriched coffee that has really changed lives. Their reviews are incredible, so make sure you check these guys out. This CBD-infused coffee has taken away long-term migraines, back pain, arthritis, IBS. It has helped to decrease anxiety. You name it, CBD is all natural and not psychoactive. The coffee is rich and tasty, and we could not recommend it any more to our listeners. Check it out for yourself today, and you can receive 20% off when you use the promo code BSN2019 at checkout, and you'll get it shipped straight to your door. Back here on the Monday edition of the BSN Nuggets podcast, Harrison Wind and Christian Clark here. So when we look forward to the offseason, and yeah, maybe Denver could look for some bench help, and there's a couple intriguing names, uh, some of which we just rattled off that Denver could look to. There are a couple other things we'll be watching this summer, and I think this might be a good place to and good time to set the stage for that. One is the debut of Michael Porter Jr., which will come at Summer League. He confirmed that here on Monday morning. The second is what Denver will do with Paul Millsap's contract and if he'll be back next season. How are you feeling about each of those two topics heading into the offseason? Well, I'm excited to watch Michael Porter Jr. play. Um, I was I was not able to attend the exit interviews today, but just watching all the interviews, I did get a kick of a lot of the the veteran guys saying like, "Well, I'm pumped to watch MPJ play, and you know, I hope he backs it up because he talks a lot." And I think you know it was all in good fun and it was friendly. But Michael Porter Jr. is a supremely confident individual, and I'm excited to see how that translates. Look, we know. The track record with him, you know, MVP of McDonald's All-American game. I mean, number one recruit in his high school class at, at one time. A guy with six foot ten, you know, really smooth, athletic, beautiful shooting stroke. So I'm excited to see what he's able to do. Um, I am tempering my expectations. Like, I'll just tell you right now, I don't think he's going to be an above-average NBA player next year. Hardly any rookies are, really. Um but I'm excited to see him out there. And as far as the Paul Millsap thing, you know, I feel like there's a kind of a consensus on this. I think he's going to be back. I, I, it's not going to be at that $30 million per year figure, but he seems like he really likes it here. Yeah, I agree on both fronts. Porter Jr., his shot mesmerizing. Like I could watch that guy shoot for hours. He just has a jumper that it's, you're just kind of captivated to. Like he jumps so high on his jump shots and it looks like a beautiful stroke as well. And so I agree, man. I am excited for him to suit up at Summer League. And the fact that Denver does not have a first-round pick this year 
And they don't have a second rounder either as of now, unless they buy into this thing or something or trade a guy and pick up a second round pick. It's probably going to be a very quiet draft for Denver unless there's a trade that goes down. So I do feel like for these next couple months, it's going to be all about Michael Porter and what to expect from him at Summer League and how he looks there. Denver, by the way, is going to have a loaded Summer League team with a big three that I'm already coining with Michael Porter Jr., Jared Vanderbilt, and Vlaco Chanchar, but... Anyway, that's a discussion for another day. My favorite thing about you is you get more excited for summer league than the regular season. Oh, come on. Come on. That's a compliment, I swear. I was very excited for this season. Um, but no, that team should be a lot of fun to watch. So that's going to be something we're watching over these next few months. And you get the feeling talking to all these Nuggets players, they're all very excited to see what Porter can do. They've watched this guy kind of play three on three off to the side. He's played a little five-on-five, but I don't think like any five-on-five against like Paul Millsap or or Jokic or anybody. He's just been playing with those end-of-the-bench guys and those three-on-three games a couple hours before Denver's actual games and with Nuggets player development coaches. And, you know, he's looked all right. Doesn't seem like he has that quickness back still and that mobility, but that stuff takes time after a back injury especially. But he says he feels 100% healthy, way healthier than he thought he would feel at this point and he's good to go so I'm excited and I agree I don't think Nuggets fans should have too high of expectations I mean I can't see him playing any more than like 15 minutes a game at the absolute most next year just don't expect him to be the savior or anything like that's that's just not fair to him well not yet (laughs) (laughs) he'll be disappointed but you know if it's going to work out if Michael Porter Jr. is going to have a nice NBA career I feel like he couldn't have landed in a a better situation for him than Denver. There are no expectations. You know, if he'd gone to almost any of those other lottery teams, there'd been expectations from the jump. Maybe it would have felt pressure to to play during his rookie year. This was a perfect situation for him, just getting to, to sit back, watch a lot of young guys, you know, figure out how to actually have success in the NBA. I I feel like he was able to, to soak up so much this year. Um, and, you know, I think that guy has all the talent in the world. I think he was a little bit immature as most 19-year-olds were coming into the NBA. So I'm hoping he learned some lessons just, just sitting back and watching. Yeah, my other impressions of Porter, he's a shot maker. You know, this is a guy who comes to the Nuggets and came to Denver last summer with a really high offensive pedigree. My read on what kind of his favorite go-to looks are on the offensive end, seems like he loves the pull-up jumper. And high school and a lot of those All-American games, he really looked for that pull-up jumper often. A lot of times he's off balance, so he'll really have to get better there. You know, if he can get to the rim, he's going to be able to you know, have a long and productive NBA career. I mean, how many just lobs do you think he could get a game from Jokic if he's just running Denver's equal opportunity read and react offense? I mean, if he just runs to the rim and you throw it up, it's going to get a lot of easy buckets that way. And so, you know, offensively, he should be versatile. I'm not sure, you know, how explosive he's going to be right out of the gate with the injury history he's had, but he's very skilled, and I think he'll have to work on his ball handling too, but, you know, he should be able to shoot it right when he gets into the league, and if he's willing to move off the ball and willing to run and cut and uh, screen in Denver's offense, he should get a lot of easy buckets too. I'm going to put you on the spot again. Who do you think averages more minutes next year, Michael Porter Jr. or Jared Vanderbilt? Mm. <laughs> <laughs> I think it's Porter. I'll go Porter. 
Yeah. Yeah. But you did have to think about it. Because it very easily could be like five apiece, you know? Yeah, yeah. I'll, I'll say Porter barely. Yeah, I'll say Porter. Okay. You I, say Porter too. Yeah, I, I think I'm with you. Yeah. But the fact that you do have to think about it. Right, because they both could not play. You know, that that's a scenario that's yeah. out there too. I think Porter will be, you know, maybe like their ninth man, if I had to guess, but... There's probably also a scenario where both those guys are out of the rotation, at least to start the year. And then, you know, defensively, I think Porter will probably have a big learning curve on that end of the floor. And I think he comes into the league as a guy who's really just been an offensively focused player throughout most of his career, as a lot of these top flight recruits are. And they've got to learn defense on the fly. And I think that's what Porter's going to have to do. So it's going to be a process for him to get up to par on that end of the floor, as it's been for a lot of Denver's young guys. Yeah, I mean, Jamal Murray and Malik Beasley, those guys, like, oh, God, I, I have to play. Oh, Jamal Murray, I mean, he's so such a good shot maker that maybe it, it doesn't even matter for him. But Malik Beasley was a guy like you were just talking about where, you know, best player in his team, you know, probably since middle school, top yeah. 40 guy, you know, average, what, 16, 17 a game at Florida State. And he gets in the NBA and realizes all of a sudden, Oh God, I got to play defense to get in the rotation now. There, there could be some of that for Michael Porter Jr. I'm, I'm sure the Nuggets are very excited about getting Michael Porter into this thing, but Michael Malone's probably not too enthused about having to teach another rookie how to play defense, <laughs> as he's had to do like <laughs> twice a year for the last three years. So, guys, we finally made some strides last year. We're in the top ten. Please, yeah. So I'm excited for Porter. Offensively, the sky's probably the limit for him. Long as he's able to regain a lot of that quickness that he lost with that back injury. And I think defensively is where he will have the biggest learning curve. I think he's also just going to have to really learn to trust his teammates, which shouldn't be too hard in Denver, because it certainly seemed from watching him in high school and whatnot, he was a real ISO guy. Like, again, a lot of those top flight high school recruits are. But, you know, when you play with Nikola Jokic and as much talent that he's going to have in Denver, that shouldn't be too difficult for him. I heard, you know, numerous national media people come into Denver and, and say something along the lines of, this is the best vibe in the NBA. So, I mean, yeah. that, that's something that, you know, I, I think we had a pretty good idea of. But, you know, this was uh, among the teams that had the best chemistry in the NBA. So, My- Michael Porter Jr., it, sh- it should be, you know, he should be able to figure that out, you'd hope. And on the Paul Millsap front, I'll just address that here. You touched on it a few minutes ago. I'm with you. From what I hear, I would expect him to be back. And I think he'll be back not on that $30 million figure. I think Denver will turn that down. And unless they get a Kevin Durant, a Kawhi Leonard, a Chris Middleton, I think they would want to bring Millsap back. And I think Millsap wants to be back. He had a couple interesting quotes today, actually. Mike Singer from The Post asked him if he thought that this group in Denver gave him his best shot at winning a championship. And Millsap kind of joked. He said, I could go to the Golden State Warriors. <laughs> and then he went on to say, you know, I don't know, but from how I want to do it and how I want my story to be told, it's definitely the group that can help me do it. So you get the feeling that like Millsap, he wants to win a ring badly, but he also wants to do it the right way. He doesn't want to go ring chasing. And just from talking to him throughout the year, you get the feeling where that Denver is where he wants to be and Denver is actually where he wants to retire. So I would expect him to be back. It's a great situation for him. I mean, he loves playing with Jokic. Who do, who wouldn't love playing with Jokic? I think he, he's close with the number of young guys on this team. Him and Malik, I mean, he's known Malik since he was a high school kid. 
him and Jamal are, are pretty close, um, you know, for a vet and young player. So Paul fits in really well in that locker room, you know, kind of as that elder statesman. He's got young kids too. Um, that that's something to consider the the family aspect. So mm-hmm. it seems like it would be a fit. Yeah, and I think next year if he is back, you'd probably see his minutes decrease a little bit because he averaged in the playoffs. I mean, he was up at thirty three and a half minutes per game in the regular season. He was at twenty seven. So maybe he's playing somewhere in like twenty four to twenty six minutes per game next year. Yeah. Yeah, you know, next year maybe you see Denver grooming that next guy a little bit more, whether that's a Vanderbilt, a Lyles, if they bring him back in restricted free agency. So, yeah, I would agree with you there. Anything else as we wrap up here? Any final thoughts from the Nuggets' playoff run? You know, all in all, this was a wildly successful season for Denver. 54 wins, Northwest Division title, second seed in the West, home court advantage, obviously, in the first two rounds of the playoffs, which helped them win that first-round series against Spurs for sure and almost helped them win that series against Portland. You get Nicole Jokic in the All-Star game. He's established as you know a number one guy that can win championships for you down the road. Your culture is set. This was a big year for Denver, and as a lot of guys have said, if the Nuggets do capture an NBA title, I think this will be the year that we probably look back on as – the first year where you really felt like, all right, it's within the realms of possibility. I always remember this year for everybody else outside of Denver and the basketball world at large, realizing how good Nicole Jokic is. That makes me happy. I always remember this team for just the incredible chemistry they had. The party time nuggets, as we've been calling them on this podcast, that was kind of their unofficial mantra. And I'll remember the Michael Malone heat checks. I mean, just some all-time Michael Malone moments this season. Take that L on the way out. I'm really wondering if he can keep this up next year. <laughs> I mean, he, uh, there's a little regression in the mean, probably. Yeah, there's probably a little regression coming, maybe from Denver in the regular season, maybe from Michael Malone's press conferences, too. Yeah, I mean, you can't shoot 100% all the time. All right, let's get out of here with that. Thanks for listening, guys. We'll get to some calls from the Total Beverage Fan Hotline later this week. Also have shows for the rest of the week, breaking down what we heard at the Nuggets exit interviews and you know, looking ahead to some off-season topics. We'll be back with a new episode on Tuesday. Talk to you then. The biggest benefits of CBD are our cognitive, our neuroprotection, neuroregeneration, anti-inflammatory, and then a lot of the most common situations that, that people are taking it are for pain. That is Arthur Jaffe, a former CU Buffs football player and founder of Elixinol, a Colorado-based company focused on providing the highest quality of CBD oil and hemp extracts in the world. Like Arthur mentioned earlier, CBD has significant medical benefits and isn't limited to just athletes. Everyone can take it, from adults and children to even your dog. I wished I would have learned about it or that it would have been more prominent at a younger age to potentially have have given my father a, a significant opportunity to fight prostate cancer, which ultimately took his life when I was 13. You know, I really think that it would have helped him. Arthur and the folks over at Elixinol's mission is to educate, inspire, and empower others to live naturally healthy, happy lives. To learn more and join the CBD conversation, check out elixinol.com.